we've been presently surprised to see almost a 30-40% increase in lifespan even when given that late. We tested a lot of animals in this. It's very rigorously done with over 80 animals. We're confident that this is a real anti-aging effect and very promising intervention. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Hi, everyone. We are back. It has been a while since we published our last show. I had to shift some priorities due to the pandemic and all. But I do appreciate all the kind messages letting us know you've missed the show. And it certainly has re-inspired us to get back in the saddle. Now, we will not be doing the show regularly at first, but we do plan to start publishing again and eventually get back into a good rhythm. I have to say that for all the projects in my work, the podcast is especially enriching. I get to speak with fascinating people about their fascinating work, and I get to share these discussions with the world, and I'm ever grateful for it. So to kick things back off, we welcome back Pankaj Kapahi to the show. Pankaj is a professor at the Buck Institute on Aging. Back in 2019, I interviewed Pankaj about his lab's investigation into the role of advanced glycation end products aptly known as AGEs, in the aging process. Advanced glycation end products are responsible for many of the complications of diabetes and have recently been implicated in other age-related diseases. Since we have published the last show, Pankaj and his colleagues have been hard at work to identify compounds that can fight AGEs. That work has led to the commercialization of a formula called Glylo. Today, we're going to discuss the compound and a large series of experiments that have been done on it. Pankaj, welcome back to Human OS Radio. Thank you very much. It's great to be on the show. Could you please do a quick review of AGEs for those who missed the last show and how they impact our physiology? Yeah, so AGEs, are short for advanced glycation end products, we're actually all familiar with this because making advanced glycation end products is the most commonly practiced chemistry reaction. Every time you're cooking, sugars and amino acids react they form AGEs at high temperature. For example, if you made a toast this morning, that toast created about 50 different AGEs. And that's what gave that very interesting flavor that we're all addicted to. This was discovered in the early 1900s. But what's been very important in terms of biology has been this realization that the formation of advanced glycation end products is also taking place in our cells, though at a slow rate, but it's quite appreciable. and is now linked with several diseases, including diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases, and aging. My lab studies a specific type of age, which we think is one of the most common ones. The precursor is methylglyoxal. So during glycolysis, you make this byproduct called methylglyoxal, and this reacts with protein, DNA, lipid, non-enzymatically, and will then form a irreversible product. And that's why it's called an advanced glycation in products. The idea is that it can't be reversed back, just like what would happen when you would make a toast, you can't get back the bread or when you fry your egg. When it's in this advanced form, it cross-links different proteins and has impact on different cellular and tissue physiology, leading to a breakdown of homeostasis. So endogenously, these are formed largely through carbohydrate metabolism, glycolysis in particular, and as a result, methylglyoxal is formed. Now, this toxic compound will interact non-enzymatically with biomolecules like protein and DNA to form advanced glycation end products, which is an irreversible process. AGEs, once created, 
then form cross-links that impair tissue function, which leads to disease. So is there an endogenous system that prevents AGE formation? Absolutely. That's exactly what made me realize this is a very important system because there are several enzymes in place that are trying to detoxify methylglyoxal, especially. What's interesting is that some of them are redundant. So it tells you how much our cells devoid energy in terms of ensuring that don't accumulate AG. And the second important point is this happens in every cell that's using glucose. There's no way out. So from bacteria to us, all cells that use glucose make AGE. So even our microbiome is constantly making AGEs. We're getting it from outside. And then on top of that, we're endogenously producing it in every cell. Do you think then, since we have an endogenous system, that part of the pathology of modern life might be the overproduction of AGEs or even the underhandling of them, given how we live and what we eat? That's the idea. Under conditions of nutrient overconsumption or especially consumption of too much glucose, and with age, this system can't cope with the amount of ATEs we make, and that's why it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem as the epidemic of obesity and diabetes is increasing right now. So you did a series of experiments looking at whether or not you could modify AGEs. Is that correct? Correct. We actually had a very elegant model in C elegant. So one of the challenges in the ATEs field is that it takes decades to accumulate so people have always thought of it as a biomarker, but necessarily a causal factor. And there haven't been good drugs around to detoxify that. And previously, there were some very promising drugs, but they had the side effects. But they were made based on a chemistry approach that will just trap the AG and that will be the end of it. We are taking a different approach. We're saying the cell already has these endogenous defenses in place. Why not see how the cell can respond to natural compounds and if they can upregulate these defenses to detoxify the AGs. Okay. So we had an elegant system in C. elegans where we could see the accumulation of ATEs within three, four days. And what's amazing is that we've shown that this accumulation of ATEs is sufficient to not only shorten lifespan, cause neuronal damage, and essentially mimic diabetic neuropathy in C. elegans. So given the C. worms live only 20 days, we were able to screen about 800, 900 compounds to identify those that protected against AGEs. And one gratifying moment was that you can get a worm to have the same pathology like a diabetic would show with neuropathy. And the second moment of epiphany was that we identified lipoic acid as one of our top hits yeah. uh, published the first paper. And that was really interesting because lipoic acid is already given in several countries for diabetic complications like neuropathy and it helps lower sugar as well. And it's one of the key components of glycine. Tell us what you did next. You now have an understanding of which compounds are most powerful to fight against AGEs. What was the next step then in terms of creating the formulation of glylo? Yeah, I identified about 15 different hits from this screen. We knew lipoic acid was there and several other interesting compounds on which trials had been done. They're protective, but we asked if we could do better. Our approach was let's only take compounds that are known to be safe in humans. Most of them would come under supplement grade. We, we commonly take them. We know there's going to be a low risk of toxicity. That means we can translate it in humans much easier. So we took only those compounds and we tried hundreds of combinations because we had about 10 odd compounds. So we first tried doubles, then we tried triples. And like that, we essentially came up with a combination of five compounds 
that we found had the best activity in reducing glycation. We moved from C. elegans to mammalian neurons because we know neurons are very sensitive to the damage due to ages. So we did the combination screen in neurons. You take neurons and you put methylglyoxal or any of the age, and we found that would kill the cells or damage them or retract their processes. So the neuron can only function if it has long processes. And then we were able to reverse all that by this combination. Okay, so some of the earliest work was to identify the compounds that have the most potent effect on advanced glycation end products, combined those compounds into a formula that was additive slash synergistic, then first test the formulation in a sensitive marker, which was neurite length retraction. And what you found was that the formula rescued the neurons that were exposed to the toxic methylglyoxal. That led to a series of other experiments. And from a high level, what were the types of outcomes that you were looking at with Glylo in this paper that was recently published? This was all done with C. elegans, in neurons, in vitro. We really wanted to now ask what happens when you give it to an intact animal and how the mammal respond. We started these experiments with mice before you tried it in humans. We gave this to mice and our hope was really to see protection against diabetes and maybe aging. But it's been remarkable to see the results that not only did we see a lot more interesting phenotypes, but all across the board, it has such a strong protective effect that it's led to the formation of the company. I've been taking it for two years. The three major things we saw in mice, first of all, off the bat, we found it reduces calorie intake. Secondly, we found that it improves insulin sensitivity. And that's really remarkable because there's the idea in the field that this methylglyoxal might drive diabetic pathologies and diabetes, but this was really very strong evidence to us that, wow, you can take these compounds and significantly improve how the animal handles glucose. And thirdly, we saw the largest lifespan extension that's been seen in animals where a drug has been given after 24 months. I mean, they're already two-year-old. They're equivalent to a 70-year-old person. And usually caloric restriction does not work that well when the animal is that old. Mm. We have been presently surprised to see almost a 30, 40% increase in lifespan, even when given that late. We tested a lot of animals in this. It's very rigorously done with over 80 animals. We're very confident that this is a real anti-aging effect and very promising intervention. Lots of exciting stuff there. Let's go a little deeper in, into some of these areas. The first thing that you mentioned is that you saw that there was a reduction in feeding. If they're not eating as much, then it could be due to a couple of different things. So how did you then investigate what was potentially driving the effect of reduced consumption of food? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say very specific effect on feeding here. We found that it specifically reduces carbohydrate consumption. If you remember how I told you, methylglyoxal is made from glycolysis. So it makes total sense that if you reduce methylglyoxal, we think it's part of the sugar addiction mechanism. What makes you eat sugar and once you eat sugar makes you want to eat more sugar. We think methylglyoxal could be driving this. And when you take this, it reduces specifically carbohydrate consumption, which is good because you want to keep your healthy fats and proteins and it's reducing the effects of carbohydrate toxicity. We found that the appetite was reduced, but it goes to a new set point. The animal doesn't get malnutrition. And we asked that major pathways that are known for appetite reduction are leptin. And the other hormone that's very interesting is called ghrelin. When you're hungry, 
ghrelin goes up and tell the animal to eat more. So we ruled out that any of this is due to the effects of leptin. And this is a big advantage because we found that the glylo can overcome leptin resistance, which is commonly seen, which means people will overeat. And even though they're making leptin, the body does not recognize that signal and keeps overeating. So glylo would be a benefit in those animals. We tested this very thoroughly and we even used a mouse model of leptin resistance where the leptin receptor is knocked out. These animals become almost twice the size of a normal animal and we could bring it back to normal size, reverse all the phenotypes like fatty liver disease, that's reversed. Most of these animals die quite fast because they overeat. And after six months, we lost half the animals, but not a single animal died, which was eating the supplement. Fascinating. So it's not uncommon to see changes in ghrelin after weight loss. In fact, that would be one of the physiological responses you do see that then increases food consumption, getting weight back up to the point where it was before, which is really disheartening. And more specifically, you see increases in ghrelin, uh, higher levels of ghrelin between meals. And you also see a reduction in ghrelin after a meal has initiated. Both of those are going to be promoting more food intake. You saw ghrelin did not change. Was this also after weight loss? Yeah, exactly. So we injected ghrelin, which normally would make the animal eat more. But when the animals are fed with glylo, it had no impact on ghrelin. And what we have found is that glylo rewires the hypothalamus such that the animal thinks it's fed. Even though it's receiving 20, 30% less calories, the brain is sending the signal we're fed. And what we have found which is leading to lots of exciting projects in the lab, that glylo seems to keep the hypothalamus young and in a better condition in the sense that it feels it's fed. And we are now also finding that it improves the whole hypothalamic caudal axis. It has positive impact on other systems as well, not just the hypothalamus. But we think hypothalamus is the key because that's the seat of the brain, which, you know, Asana controls all food intake. And we find that glylo seems to change that such that the animal thinks it's in a healthy state and fed. I've come to think that obesity is really more of a problem of hypothalamic change than it is the expression of a higher body fatness. So let me say that again. My thinking is that obesity is not necessarily just a change in body fatness, but it is actually a change or possibly a variety of changes in the brain and the symptom of those change or changes in the brain is an elevation in body fatness. So in this situation, which is all too common, if a person loses weight, the brain thinks that it's in a state of deprivation and makes a variety of changes to get a person back up to a level of body fatness that is unhealthy or undesirable. That is a disheartening situation for anybody who wants to lose weight. So really in my mind, the holy grail for weight loss is some sort of compounded treatment that can resensitize the hypothalamus so that it is maintaining a body fat level against a lower set point. So the body feels comfortable when it loses weight. Because when people say, I want to lose weight, what they're really saying is, I want to live at a lower body fatness level. So let's say if a person wants to drop 50 pounds, whatever the weight number is, they really want to lose weight in a way where they, their body feels more comfortable at that weight and not feel miserable and low energy, et cetera. And we now have compounds, these GLP-1 analogs like semaglutide and terzepatide that can help the situation quite a bit. Do you think that glylo might have an additive benefit 
on top of these drugs that are triggering the GLP-1 receptors. You're absolutely right. What we are doing here is changing the set point. And from what all the what we're learning about what's happening with glylo on, on the brain, it's working through the changes in the hypothalamus, which is controlling the, the set point. So we think glycation has very strong impact on the hypothalamus. So by reducing glycation, the animal lures itself in a fed state. And this impact is through the responsiveness of the hypothalamus to grab. We're not changing peripheral hormones, but changing how hypothalamus is responding. So these other drugs should work in conjunction with glylo. There should be further positive effects if people wanted to use that in conjunction. And we've got a very nice effect on insulin sensitivity, which is a big plus. Let me say something more about GLP-1 analogs like semaglutide. The way that I imagine semaglutide and other types of compounds like it working is to imagine a seesaw. On one side of the seesaw, you have programs that are promoting energy conservation. So lower physical activity, increased food consumption. And on the other side of the seesaw, you have the opposite. You have increased activity and decreased food consumption. You can imagine if they're balanced, then you're at a healthy body weight, a healthy set point. So as the set point goes up, the seesaw starts to tilt towards the conservation side. How does GLP-1 work then? So imagine a finger coming into the picture and pushing down on the other side of the seesaw, the one that increases energy expenditure and decreases food consumption, particularly the food consumption part. Semaglutide pushes that seesaw back into a state of better balance. And now with the weight loss that occurs, your body will feel more comfortable at that new weight, which is exactly what we would want if we lost weight. So semaglutide is an amazing advancement, but it's still not the holy grail because we're not actually changing the set point. We're just reinforcing one side of the set point. So when I was reading your paper, I was thinking about the possibility of combining semaglutide with glylo to see if we could achieve levels of efficacy that go beyond what we see with semaglutide alone, which have been really impressive for the first time we have a legitimate weight loss medication, seeing 15, 20% reductions in weight loss. And as long as you stay on it, you can actually preserve that weight loss as though it appears so far. Can we go beyond that by adding in this complementary compound? Possibly, I'd love to see more work in that area, but super exciting either way. Let's go back to metabolism. You said that there was an improvement in insulin sensitivity. How did you measure that in the mice that were taking glylo? We're finding very robustly that when we do a glucose challenge, for example, and this is not even in diabetic mice, even in normal mice, we compare how quickly does this animal essentially handles the glucose, so brings it back to normal level. And we compare that with glylo-treated mice, and the glylo-treated mice do a much better job at helping the organism bring back glucose to manual level. We've also done what's called an insulin tolerance test. You give insulin and you ask, how much does that bring down glucose? And what we're finding is that glylo, when animals are fed with glylo, the animal becomes more sensitive to insulin. So it, with the same amount of insulin, it can bring down glucose further. So we think there are very profound peripheral effects, like, for example, on the fat and the muscle, which are further contributing to this improvement. So this is where glycation is a very unique target, because from the chemistry I described, 
it's in every cell. So you're not working on a, something like a GLP, which is in certain cell types and a very specific function. You're actually working on glycation, which is modifying different cell types in different ways, but generally in the negative direction. And so what you are doing here, we think is both improving insulin sensitivity, while at the same time, you're telling the hypothalamus that the animal is fed. So that's why I think it has such a profound effect on improvement of insulin sensitivity. So to recap, in your studies, you saw a decrease in blood glucose following an IP injection of glucose into the animal. So the body handled the glucose that came in better. Then another experiment, you saw decreased glucose after an injection of insulin so that it was more sensitive to insulin. We know that some carbohydrates are fine, but higher levels of glucose lead to further creation of GEs. Is that correct? This is something that is so underappreciated. And as I've been studying this, I'm realizing more and more. Even we all know hyperglycemia causes diabetes and diabetes, when it's a chronic state, this hyperglycemia, the sugar and serum is going to predispose you to several diabetic complications. It's the biggest cause of blindness, diabetic retinopathy. Neuropathy, you're going to get peripheral neuropathy. Your whole autonomic nervous system falls apart due to diabetes. It's the biggest risk factor for cardiomyopathy. Then you've got a big risk factor for stroke, chronic kidney disease. And then you've got neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Diabetes doubles to quadruples the risk of all these diseases. But what do slight increases in glucose do in a normal person? And they've found that there is an inverse correlation with IQ. So cognition is affected even in normal people by increase in glucose. And I have an anecdote to share. I was doing continuous glucose monitoring because people respond differently to different carbs. And I was just observing myself. And it was really remarkable to see that when the glucose hit the peak, like I was taking more sugar, I would fall sleepy when it would peak. And from that, now I know when you start feeling cloudy after a meal, it's that. So now I became much more vigilant after that. Intermittent fasting helps, and that's why I recommend that with glylo. And secondly, glylo helps in reducing the meal size. Helps a lot. So all these things help you then not reach these points of sugar spikes, which essentially could be damaging in the long run, but even in the short run, you feel cloudiness. So if you want to remain alert, it's very important to keep this homeostasis. It's interesting to think about this information particularly in light of the paper that was recently uh, from Walter Longo and Rosalind Anderson in the journal Cell. And in this paper, they looked at nutrition, longevity, and disease from a basic science perspective all the way into interventions. And from their analysis, they've determined that a diet comprised of 60% carbohydrate was the one that conferred the greatest longevity benefit. But they also made the point very clearly that this is only carbohydrates that are in the form of whole food plant types. So if you're consuming carbohydrates that keep your blood glucose stable, if you're taking in the right types of carbs that metabolize slowly, that have nutrients in them that affect the absorption, metabolism, excretion of the carbohydrates, then is it really carbohydrates that are the problem or is it the form that they come in? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the ratio of fiber to carbs. So one is not taking simple carbs. And if you take more fiber-rich foods, that helps the release of carbs to be more slow. And so you're absolutely right. There have been studies with thousands of individuals and people respond differently to different carbs. So it's good to know what works for you or doesn't work for you. And yeah. Because not everybody's sugar apparently went up on white rice. So it's good to understand these differences. So these mice on glylo lost weight. 
you did DEXA scanning on them? Were they losing lean mass or was it mostly body fatness that they lost? This is a great question. And this is going to be the topic of our second paper. We found that it was impacting the fat mass and it not only just maintained lean mass, but actually helps increase muscle mass. And this fits very well with the idea that we're finding that when we give glylo, you increase glutathione. We've asked lots of questions, you know, using metabolomics, and we've found that it reduces glycolysis and it increases the pool of the antioxidants, glutathione, which also essentially help detoxify the ages. And the combination of this is really good for the muscle. Diabetic don't get the same benefits from exercise because the sugar seems to act as a break on the benefits of muscle. But we're finding the opposite with glylo. Glylo, the animals are more active. And this is one of the common benefits people who are taking glylo is increased in energy. And so the muscle mass is also going up and we're finding increased in muscle strength based on a number of other measures. Because glylo is affecting AGEs, you'd expect tissues throughout the body to be affected positively. And when taking glylo, the mice kept more muscle mass, which is a very desirable outcome. Among other things, lean muscle tissue is a sieve for caloric excess in society. In other words, when you have more muscle, your body can handle higher levels of calories and prevent high blood glucose, which is a good thing. There could very well be a positive influence on sarcopenia or age-related loss of muscle tissue. I'd love to see more work on that specifically. Now, you mentioned that there was an increase in energy expenditure. When you're looking at weight loss, you always want to consider both sides of the equation, both energy in and energy out. In your experiments, you saw that there was an increase in energy expenditure in these animals. Correct. Yeah. Did you notice any effects on brown fat or thermogenic genes? Thermogenic genes were not altered that much, not so much brown fat as well, but the animal engaged more increased breakdown of fat. Let's go back to lifespan. Obviously, it's becoming an increasingly popular topic. Many companies now are trying to fight different aspects of aging in some way or another. You mentioned something earlier in the call, that this is the longest lifespan extension seen with any compound given in mice over two years old, which would be equivalent to a human being 70. What was the previous champ in terms of longevity extension? We know rapamycin extends lifespan, and most of the experiments are done starting at 20 months. We did our experiments starting at 24 months, but the effect seems to be very strong even at 24 months. And we are now conducting more experiments head-to-head with rapamycin and also in combination with rapamycin to see what would happen under the same conditions. But from the percentage changes we are seeing, this is a striking effect. Even caloric restriction doesn't work that well at this age. And on top of that, we've now done a comparison of changes in the Gene expression in the hypothalamus and in the hippocampus, the part of the brain that's important for memory information. And in both these parts of the brain, gene expression reverts to that of a younger animal. So we're seeing not only extension of lifespan, but actually a reversal of the pattern of gene expression in the brain. So you started doing work in roundworms. You have now moved into mice. And there's a product out there that is available for people to buy. Do you have any human studies planned? Absolutely. We are working hard to raise funds to do clinical trial. Unfortunately, as you may be aware, like when you're working with supplements, because it's not easy to get pharma funding and private funding, it's hard to raise money. So we are trying to raise money through philanthropy and also through the NIH to get funds to get human trials started. But we've received IND status from the FDA, so they're good with us trying this in humans. For the commercially available product, how did you determine dosage? That was a little tricky. 
generally you go 10x from what happens in mice. We tried to make it appropriate to what we've seen in mice, but we also were mindful of what's a good safety limit in humans and what have been tried in previous trials to see where it's not too high. But I just want to remind everybody again, the five compounds are nicotinamide, lipoic acid, thiamine, pyridoxamine, and piperine. Now, there are multiple clinical trials done with all of them individually, and they're all mostly beneficial. But together, this is going to be much more promising. And also, if you use nicotinamide, nicotinamide, lipoic acid, none of these have lifespan extension effects in mice. And what we are seeing with the combination is something synergistic and much more superior than in a single supplement alone. So we're excited about this. We all have them present in our body. Three of them are B vitamins and one lipoic acid is also found in the body. And piperin is a component in black pepper, but the dosage is such that it should be on the safe side. This is not a multivitamin pill. The doses are much higher than that in a multivitamin pill, but they're on the same side, but on the higher end. So they're within the upper tolerable limit that has been set by the FDA. Exactly. They're within the safety limit set by the FDA. When I was looking at the product originally, you have somewhat common ingredients, but in a specific combination and amounts that leads to results beyond what you would imagine seeing with those individual ingredients alone. When I looked at the B vitamins, they're very high, but you put my worries at ease to show that it's still within that upper limit of what is considered safe. I would have a lot of people recommend taking almost a gram or an NMN or NR, but one advantage of taking the five together would then be you don't need to take it at that high. If you're taking a single compound like lipoic acid, negative at high levels, this actually allows you to reduce that dosage to get better effects. When did it become commercially available? We started last August. Now it's almost been here. All right, so we'll take this for what they are, but since it's been on the market, what kind of anecdotes have you heard from people that have been taking it? It's been largely positive, and especially people in the scientific community or people who know us, they have been more mindful of the changes. Not everybody sees the effects on appetite suppression, but a lot of people are seeing that, and I see that myself. But I think one needs the sort of awareness to observe this. You have to be mindful of what your daily practices are. But what's been more exciting is the few people who are doing it long-term are seeing benefits. Like, for example, I have a few friends. One of them keeps very close record of his swim time. He's seeing almost a 10% improvement in how well he's been swimming. He has data from the last seven, eight years. He's been taking it now for almost a year. I see the increase in stamina. So the long-term effects which start after three to six months, you can expect to see the benefits. It's always an advantage in the supplement world where you can feel the effects. So how is it taken? That's an interesting point. B vitamins at high doses should not be taken late during the day because they can keep people active. And so we recommend that you take it early in the day. Some people are taking two pills a day early in the morning, two to three pills a day, or you can take one pill before lunch and one pill before breakfast or whatever works for people. But generally during early part of the day is what I recommend. Do you plan to work on any new formulations or you feel like you've got the formulation that you are going to go with at this point? This has been very exciting to see that components can work together. We'll be trying other things in the lab to work out which ones work well together because some also can be detrimental. So we are going to go one by one. It's going to be labor intensive, but to see which other things could be added further. Do you have yeah. a roadmap of the future research work? We were counting last year. We have 10 studies planned. 
in our lab. And also a lot of collaborators have been trying this out with the promising results. So just want to mention a couple of things that are coming. We will be doing a study on the improvement on muscle. The second, we're finding that this can overcome the effects of menopause in mouse, where you take out the ovaries and leads to drastic decline in health. That can be reversed with this, which is exciting because potential side effects of hormone therapy in humans after menopause related to cancer, to have a safer alternative that can protect you from the aging effects of menopause, that would be promising. So during menopause or when you lose ovaries, there's a decrease in estrogen and increase in FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. And that's been recently implicated not only in muscle loss and bone loss, but also driving Alzheimer's disease. We can reverse that with Glyla, which is exciting, and we're building on that work. You would imagine that if a compound had a positive effect on an aging factor that has system-wide influence, then you would potentially see many different aging and lower health-related conditions improve if you were able to modify that factor robustly enough and early enough in the pathogenic process. I'd be curious to hear what improvements people report when taking Glylo. And I can see this becoming another source of new research ideas for your lab and collaborators. Exactly. One other area I just want to mention is the eye. We've seen dramatic improvements in the aging of the eye and the animals as well. But no, but you're actually right. I think given glycation is something that ends up affecting different tissues, we do expect this to work on multiple tissues, but we have to go one by one. So heart, eye, and the brain seem to be protective right now, and we are working on papers around those. Pankaj, thank you so much for coming back on the show and explaining AGEs to us and all the work that you've been doing, screening over 800 compounds to identify the ones that have the most impact on methylglyoxylase reduction, and then all the subsequent experiments that you've been doing to test efficacy of this formulation on different systems and tissues. You've been very busy. My lab been wonderful. We're very excited about what we're doing here and especially now thinking more about how to translate this further. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.